Welcome to this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Folks, you are here in for a treat. It is the last episode of 2020, a year in review. I have three guests, a listener, Sally, with the Twitter handle, Ed Bartels, and an oncologist, Dr. Vinay Prasad at UCSF. He is an oncologist, a policy, a healthcare policy specialist, and an opinionated oncologist, and Saurabh Jeha, an opinionated radiologist in Philadelphia. I have the three of them joining me for a roundtable chat about what's going, what happened in 2020. Let's talk about 2020, a year in review. We're going to talk COVID-19. We're going to talk mid-Twitter, a little bit of vaccines, some schools, debates, trade-offs, censorship, cancel culture, whatever you want. And guess what? We're going to talk about Jan Mandrola. John Mandrola is this cardiologist. We need to figure out why he is so bad. John, I'm kidding. I hope you know I'm kidding. But it's really a lot of fun because we talked about you a lot today, John. I hope you're listening. Okay, folks, you have to listen to this episode. It's great. And you have to let me what you think of this episode. Make sure you subscribe, you rate, and give the Healthcare Unfiltered the number of stars that it deserves. Let me know how we're doing by sending me an email or on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. Without further ado, the three musketeers on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I'm very excited about today's episode because I have three phenomenal guests, uh, celebrities. I would say absolute celebrities <laughs> on social media. In fact, I honestly, I'm a little bit humbled and I can't tell if they came on my show because they have nothing else better to do or because <laughs> they, really, they really want to accommodate my request. No, in all due seriousness, I'm very happy to have uh, first, Sally, she goes only by Sally, but the Twitter handle is at Bartels. And if you have not followed at Bartels, you better follow at Bartels. She, I, I, you know, uh, it's funny, actually, I absolutely thought, Sally, that you were a physician. And then I was shocked when you when I discovered you were not because you have, um, you know, so much about medicine more than um, uh, the typical non-physician person. Then I have another celebrity, Dr. Vinay Prasad who hosts his own podcast show, YouTube channel. He's going to tell us all about it and has thousands and thousands and thousands of followers. So um, we all watch him like a hawk anytime he messes something up on Twitter. And then, um, <laughs> That's all I do. The radiologist in chief, Dr. Saurabh Jeha, who is, goes by <coughs> Rogue Rad on Twitter. So we're going to talk about a year in review. We're going to do 2020 in review over the next hour or so. We'll make it fun, conversational. We'll pick on each other. We'll make fun of each other. But first, introductions. Sally, whatever you want to tell listeners about yourself, go ahead. Uh, people can find out pretty much uh, from my Twitter handle. Um, yeah, I'm not a... I'm the not a doctor in the group. I'm the uh, token white person in the group. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really honored that you were brave enough to venture out there. Um, anyway, my, my medical interests are longstanding and um, 
Twitter has been great for it. And I know all of you really well through Twitter. We're very happy you joined us. Vinay, I call you Vinay, and I'm realizing a lot of people call you Vinay. Can you just solve this for us one and for all? What is, how do I call you? Well, my full name is Vinayak, and I go by Vinay, Vinay Prasad. I should do Vinay. Okay. My full name is Vinayak, but nobody calls me Vinayak except my parents. So we'll do Vinay. <laughs> okay. Or, or you can call me VP. That's what a lot of people call me. VP. So I think uh, everybody knows you, but whatever you want to tell folks about you. And I, I, I want to specifically, you got into YouTube channel right now, which is uh, new. Although Sucks. you got into Sucks. this uh, at the same time when you decided, <laughs> you, you, you decided not to cut your hair and you went on YouTube. Interesting. It was terrible. <laughs> well, uh, it's a work in progress. Uh, maybe someday I'll be able to uh, revive it, but it is currently languishing. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I'm a YouTuber, um, but podcast is, is more is more my speed, uh, just in terms of introduction. So um, I'm an associate professor here at UCSF. I'm in EpiBioStats. I'm a practicing hematologist oncologist as much as, as much as some people didn't think that was the case on Twitter. Uh, I'm in clinic every Wednesday. You will find me religiously there and, and sometimes on service as well. Um, and I do broadly hemonc, uh, just like you, Chadi, back in the day, uh, broad interest in hemonc, all things hemonc. And uh, at Rogue Grad, Saurabh Jeha. Who the heck are you? Thanks for the invitation, Chadi. I was just going to say, you know, uh, Sally said that she's not a physician. Technically, I'm not a doctor either. I'm a radiologist. <laughs> these lines are very blurred. Uh, so I, uh, I practice in Philadelphia, and uh, I opine on many things, culture, politics, and... I still haven't been cancelled from Twitter, though that is not for the lack of effort. <laughs> uh, it is very possible that the three of you will be cancelled after this one, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> so I was thinking of categories to cover. I mean, 2020 has been an interesting year. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we it's impossible to cover it in an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. But, but we'll try just to talk about it. Of course, the biggest thing is COVID-19. And, you know... Sally represents here the listener, the consumer, the non-physician, so maybe on the other side of physician and, you know, and so forth. So what are the lessons that we have learned in 2020 about COVID-19? Sally, let's start by you as, an, as, a, as a consumer of the medical literature. What have you learned? I've learned uh, not to get ahead of my skis. <laughs> um, and to take a lot of things under advisement and to be more slow to weigh in, even inside myself on one side or another. It's, and it's an ongoing effort all the time because there's so much conflicting information, especially about policy issues. And I've had, I'm always the person with more questions than answers. I've been very slow to adopt fairly confidently some answers, but even those you could probably push me off in one direction or another at times. Um, yeah, it's been a crazy year and COVID has absolutely dominated our lives in here in Medford. My friends and family were, were overtaken with it all the time. Should we be? I think we probably should be, 
but I have access to the outdoors here in uncrowded spaces. And it's, mm-hmm. I've said before, it's the only thing that has saved me all year. And mm-hmm. I dread winter because the winter is going to be a lot harder to get through. Uh, and I just posted this morning a med page opinion piece on how to get through Christmas. And basically it was move the whole thing outdoors. Yeah. And I was just like jumping up and down. Yes. I mean that you can, you can do that safely and we don't have to quibble about canceling everything. I would, well, it's the only way I've gotten through the year. And um, even in rain and cold, I'll try to get as much in as I can through the next few months because we don't expect vaccines here, our rank in the world until probably mid, even late summer. It'd be great if it was sooner, but we can't count on it. So, Vinay, take me, I want to look broader categories. When you look at COVID-19, that's, you know, Sally talked more of a, a personal impact and in, into what, what what's going on and what she learned. But um, as a policy researcher, as a physician, as a cancer specialist, all of these hats that you wear, what have you learned from the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, so many things, Chadi. I'll give you a few. I'll give you a few that you might find fun. One is, let's think back to January, February. The same pundits who are on CNN right now telling you about all the things you ought to do, January, February, they kept saying, no big deal. Flu's way worse than COVID. Flu's way worse. Um, and of course, now they've changed their tune rather quickly. Um, there's a class of doctors. They're the professional TV pundit. And I see them I see them here or there. And they've made some errors that, you know, funny that they're not going to hold themselves to their prior standard. So that, that, that's just one thing. Um, I remember in January, I think I tweeted something by Nicholas Taleb about fat tail probability um, because I've long been interested in Taleb's thinking. And, um, you know, I, of course, I didn't see SARS-CoV-2 coming like this, but um, I thought uh, at least at that point, the precautionary principle was sound. Then, of course, the other thing that jumps out at me is the academic research infrastructure. U.S., when it comes to running clinical trials of therapeutics, we, uh, we're, we're total screw-ups. Um, we, we, we screw it up. I mean, we're, we're, we're turning to the UK to run the definitive studies of tocilizumab, of convalescent plasma, of dexamethasone. Um, you know, what did we do? We ran uh, a remdesivir uh, a trial, a JAK2 inhibitor trial, very small trials. They're, they, and again, remdesivir overall mortality, you know, we don't have that signal in our trial. Um, WHO Solidarity has, I guess, some evidence that that's not the case. Um, so I think they did a better job in Europe when it comes to trials. Um, the thing we did super well was vaccines. We crushed that. I mean, I think the the pharmaceutical companies, I've been their biggest critic, you know that, but they came through. They, um, everyone else was talking shit and they actually got things done. So uh, they will deserve, I think, the bulk of the credit. Um, the other space I think we we screwed up is schools. Um, Europe, they they barely closed schools in some countries and some countries like Sweden, they never closed at all because they understand that schools are an important thing for society. And um, children, of course, at much lower rates of dying uh, and bad outcomes of SARS-CoV-2, it might even get me canceled to say, but for some ages of kids, it is on par with seasonal influenza. And that's something we send our kids to school with all the time. Uh, the US, we bungled it. Um, I think SARS-CoV-2 has made me reassess my feelings about teachers unions. I was the biggest pro-union person. You know, people <laughs> who know me know that. I was the biggest pro-union person, but boy, the, the pharmaceutical companies came through, uh, the teachers unions failed us. They failed and they still fail. They're failing every day with their ridiculous demands that keep them um, and keep kids out of school. And, and this is going to perpetuate horrible things in this country, polarization. Uh, and then the last theme is, is how we, is the theme that you keep talking about, which is, are we even allowed to debate? 
Um, this is, I think, the most important theme, and you've been very wise to point this out, which is that it increasingly feels like, even amongst academics, you can't even have a debate. I mean, they, 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 they were furious with somebody who was arguing the IFR was, I forget, 0 0.2, 0 0.3. Now, you know, estimates of the IFR is 0 0.6, 0 0.5. And of course, there's a linear grade there. I mean, but we got into these bitter, bitter, caustic arguments about IFR, let alone the harder issue, which is the trade-off, which has been, as you say, the forbidden word of the pandemic. Um, you're not allowed to say trade-offs, but that's what all this has been, policy trade-offs. And, and I guess the last thing I'd say is I, I feel a lot like Sally. I've tried to not opine on parts of this where I'm unsure. Um, one of the few policy trade-offs I've opined strongly on is the school's trade-off because I think you know, we, we fucked that up and it should have been open most of the time, um, particularly in places with low transmission. Um, but I've tried not to opine on lots of things where, where I don't know. Oh, and I guess the last thing is um, you know, masks. What a fiasco that's been. <laughs> from, you know, bitter anti-mask people, you know, who, who won't wear it under any costs and say it raises their CO2, ridiculous, that obviously not the case, um, to, to some of the adherents who make it seem like it's a parachute you put on. In fact, they've called it a parachute when, you know, it, it may, you know, it, it may offer a benefit, but there's no way in hell it's a parachute level intervention. And then, you know, all the, all the hoopla around Danish mask study. Um, and I think, I think, um, you know, we've seen when people are scared, when their back is to the wall, a very secular society will invent a new religion. And I think we've seen that all through SARS-CoV-2. Yes. Saurabh, what did you learn from COVID-19 pandemic over the past year? It's pretty hard to uh, <laughs> beat what Vinay just said <laughs> because he's uh, summarized all the warts. But I will say a couple of things. First is that none of that surprised me, to be honest, <laughs> um, at all. And it's not because I'm... Yeah, I'm some sort of cynic, which I am to a certain extent, but I've looked at history and I remember Ebola. And during Ebola, now people say, oh, don't compare Ebola to, uh, to SARS-CoV-2. One is airborne and the other one you need to sneeze or pinch someone's skin with your sweat. Fine. But during that time, there were calls for travel restrictions and those calls were, were called racist. Can you believe it? Racist. And... Back in 2014, I said, listen, I called it e-polarization, e e uh, e the polarization of society based on the politics of viruses. And I, and I said, a virus is not going to care where it comes from or what your politics is, whether you're Republican or Democrat. And this time around, true to form, again, the whole thing became politicized. The travel ban started becoming politicized. And uh, interestingly, nobody thinks too you know, hoots about isolating London, but for some reason there was this, this violin playing out for isolating China. So that didn't surprise me. The change in gear didn't surprise me either, with the people starting off saying, oh, it's all, uh, uh, it's no more dangerous than the flu and you're an idiot for fearing it. <laughs> go and hang out. I think the New York Health Commissioner said, uh, go and, you know, party in Chinatown. There's nothing wrong in saying go and party in Chinatown. You're giving people, you're telling people whilst Lombardy is burning that we're fine, nothing's going to happen to us. And that was a very unsubtle display of American exceptionalism. People think American exceptionalism only comes from conservatives to the right, but no, the, the left also expresses it in, in, in unsubtle ways. And uh, that apparently the mayor as well said, go and enjoy yourself on St. Paddy's Day. And then the shift that happened at the time of the uh, lockdown 
when uh, Trump declared it a federal emergency. That too wasn't surprising because the way doctors behave, a lot of them are sheep. When one person says one thing, the other says another thing. If you have yeah. a few key people based in Boston, mostly, uh, I'm, not feeling, <laughs> I, I'm not from Boston, I'm from Philadelphia. We don't have the same, <laughs> totally different, totally different. Don't have the same leverage over yeah. people. I, and uh, I'm fine with that. I don't want a herd of sheep bleating after me because half the time I change my mind within five minutes. So please don't consider me a prophet. I would resign instantly. But you have these prophets <laughs> from Boston. The moment they start speaking, about five or six people start speaking and then New York Times starts saying everything. It's a whole. You know, um, uh, you know. You remember in physiology, you've got this thing called the functional sensitium. So the heart contracts in unison with mm. action potentials at the various nexus of desmosome. I might be getting my physiology mm. a little weaker here. It's been a few years, but it was a bit <laughs> like that. It was just like a depolarization and a repolarization. <laughs> it was, yeah, but it doesn't surprise me. I, people think that physicians are, uh, you know, you know, we, we're very good at learning stuff, but we're not terribly good at questioning. Um, and, so, and so none of that surprised me. Sorry, that's why they call them thought leaders. They so easily have their thoughts led by the next person. I know, I know. That's quite an irony. But I will say one thing, because it may appear that I'm, I'm, when uh, I was the one that predicted SARS-CoV-2, I did not. And to prove that to you, <laughs> on February 29th, I booked an all-inclusive holiday to Cancun um, for spring break. So that tells you um, what I was thinking at the time. Um, my revealed preferences were completely out of stance with what became my actions a month later. But Sally... Vinay was saying that in January or February 2020, there were many folks on TV that they were, you know, questioning the severity of uh, SARS-CoV-2, and now they're not. What's wrong with not knowing in January and February and then changing your mind later on as more information comes in? I mean, are you, is this, does this bother you? I mean, sometimes we don't know and things just uh, change with time. We, we start knowing different things. Is that okay? What, what are your thoughts? Do you agree with, um, with Vinay? Do you think, um, isn't it okay to change someone's mind? Absolutely. I think the only problem is when people act like they never did change their minds. Mm -hmm. uh, I almost got in trouble on Twitter for defending Fauci for his early position on masks, telling people they didn't need in people in the community they didn't need them because he wanted to save them for healthcare workers, and he did not make that explicit. I think that's forgivable. I think that's understandable and forgivable. And I don't think we need a, a herd of vultures rushing down on him to show how right they were, and they didn't know at the time either, and how wrong, horrible it was that he did this. Yeah, people, yeah, Chani, let me just add one thing there. I mean, I support people changing their mind too, but I mean, I, I don't know why, like, why would somebody go in January and February? The answer should have been like, dude, I don't know. Like, um, you know, it could, it could hit over here. It could be really bad, but you know, maybe not. But their answer was very confidently like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And then when they change their mind, they do it with a smugness. Like they were always right all along. So at least have the humility to acknowledge that, you know, in the past you were brazenly off. Um, but I agree with Sally. I mean, I think that, that the Fauci is a good example. Like, you know, I don't want to pile on the guy. He's a good guy. I mean, he's worked really hard. And, um, you know, in, in retrospect, that probably was an error. Um, and, um, and, you know, but he did it for at least he states that he did it for a reason.
Sorry, Sally, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go on. Oh, that's that's fine. No, he he did it for what he thought was his best reason. And I, I think you give somebody a pass, then you don't have these, these pile-on mobs. Uh, it's a sheep on the one hand, as Sarab said. Um, a few people start bleeding one thing and bleating, and then the mob piles in and everybody's saying the same thing, and then the mob attacks on the other. Um we all listened, I think, this week to that Hidden Brain episode, mm -hmm. a podcast episode with Tamur Koran. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing his name right, who wrote a book, uh, I think, called Private Truths, Public Lies. And a lot of that showcased how people say in public one thing when they don't even believe it. But you get this huge um, momentum to one truth and it may not even be the truth, but a lot of people aren't willing to speak up. Um, Vinay, you've taken some unpopular stands or some controversial ones, and uh, like such as on schools and on some other things. And I've admired your courage doing this. <laughs> I, may, I may not always agree with you, but I really agree. And another thing that Tamar Karan has said is, uh, more open and searching civic culture means less what he calls preference falsification. I don't really like that term. I prefer the term private truth, public life, which is how yeah. he titled this book. But that to lose that is really, it's treacherous for dialogue and you lose, you lose that and, because they get an impoverishment of public discourse. Oh, yeah, you think? I mean, I think we've really yeah. seen that. And I, think I thought that one, was just really... one, one more juxtapose on this point, because I think yeah. it's really interesting, which is, you know, faulting somebody for being wrong in the past. I mean, that's the, that was the, sort of the premise that you led with and, and that I, I believe is, you know, it's okay for people to change their mind. But isn't it interesting how the person in February who was on TV saying, don't worry about COVID can come on in April and say, you know, whatever they want to say, go the other direction. But the same person holds John Yonides accountable for saying that, quote, he predicted 10,000 deaths in that March um, stat piece. Um, for, you know, I, I mean, for whatever disagreements one has with the piece, and I do have some disagreements with the piece, I don't read that as a prediction of 10,000 deaths. It was part of a range. And yet they give John no, no, he has no, no leniency in him. He's not allowed to be off a little bit. Um, you know, so it only cuts both ways, the forgiveness, I mean, uh, of being wrong. Like it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to get things wrong. But it is interesting to me that we only forgive in one direction. If you, you know, um, or we only forgive some people and then this guy doesn't get any forgiveness at all. Um, I mean, I, I guess, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess. It goes, it goes to your point, Vinay, on the, uh, on the debate issue. And I, you know, me and Saurabh actually have had some disagreement on this, and I'd like Saurabh to comment on this, because I, I tend to believe that debate has become impossible, honestly. Like, I feel, I feel it's, a, it's like, I, I like the idea of debate. In fact, there have been many things I've admitted where I've, I was, I changed my mind after I debated somebody, including Saurabh. One time I had him on my older podcast talking policy, politics and science. And I came into the podcast with a view and he was able to convince me the opposite view, actually. Wow. And I, I admitted that. But Saurabh thinks I exaggerate that there is no debate. And he, 
Well, he, I'm going to give him a chance to defend himself because he thinks it's just a pushback. It's, you know, but there is a debate, but maybe Twitter is not the platform. So, Rob, do, do you help us? Where do you stand on this? Do you feel that the era of debate is in palliative care or where do you think things are? Yeah, basically you're saying that it's debatable that things are debatable. <laughs> which... Uh, which depends on depends on what time frame you're looking at, and what you always, what you ever thought happened in this space. In reality, and I, I talk largely about physicians. Physicians haven't been ever very good about debating. Unlike economists and philosophers of um, philosophy and economics, and the legal system actually, the lawyers who debate for a, obviously debate for a living. What happens, uh, um, I'm, I'm actually a member of this, uh, this organization, the American College of Legal Medicine. I go to quite a few of their conferences. And I also attend the FedSoc debates at my institute. And they're very, very interesting. Well, the interesting thing about the lawyers when they debate is they, they argue with each other and they argue passionately and they argue uh, intelligently as well. But in the end of the day, they don't hold each other they don't think any you know worse of each other. I mean, you could have a scenario where a plaintiff and a defendant. Uh, I remember at the American College of Legal Medicine, for instance, there was two talks. One saying that things are very difficult for the plaintiff lawyers, and the other was saying that we we have too much defensive medicine, pretty much against each other in the same forum, and they had a beer afterwards. So what's the problem with physicians? Why can't we debate? For a start, I don't think it's really ingrained in our culture to debate. Things are much more you know. Uh, sacred and fixed. I mean, can you really debate where the spleen is? It's, it is where it is. It's sort of not something that you can either work from first principles or you can have an opinion about. There's a lot of just hard facts in medicine that you just have to accept. Um, there's a second thing is that there's a lot of righteousness. So my point to your question, which it appears I'm agreeing with you, but I'm not. Is that... God forbid. God forbid yeah. you agree with me. We don't want this on the air. I, I don't think that this time is categorically unique. Uh, I've been on, you know, I've been on Twitter for a very long time, well, since about 2014. And I remember when I came on it, I would push a lot of people. And I don't know what, I don't know if they just agreed with me or muted me, but there was never any, uh, you know, there were a few people that took me on. And it was, you know, it was quite fun. Uh, but every now and then, you know, there'd be a personal comment and to which I'd make a personal comment. And, you know, somebody would be saying, you know, don't argue with him. He's a pig. He loves arguing. I'm like, shit, you're right. I do, actually. <laughs> How did you guess that? Uh, I don't see, I, I think this, it's always been thus. The difference right now is that people have, um, you know, larger platforms there's a lot more RTing and liking for the sake of it. And maybe the Twitter algorithms have changed. So if somebody disagrees with you or somebody has a lot of followers disagree with you, then you're gonna start having lots of comments being passed and lots of quote tweets. And it's up to you at that point, whether you're gonna to respond to every single one of them or wait until about 20 stupid comments have been made and then make one tweet to address all 20 stupid comments. And by the way, I'm expecting uh, I'm expecting a showdown with my professional colleagues in January for a piece that I wrote on defending the use of physician extenders in radiology. 
I'm, I expect a spectrum of comments, and I've decided not to take oh, them on one on one. I, I had that one time. I wrote a piece on this for Medscape, and I had my my thing. But 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 you know, Sarab, I think what what um, what I'm trying to get at is let's take an example of masks, right? I mean, there was a mask study, the Danish mask study. I think all of us, the four of us, we wear masks. We support. I mean, nobody really is saying not to wear masks, right? I mean, I think we know they're probably not the panacea, but, you know, I think we know they help to the extent they help, and it's an easy intervention. But I think the idea that you could even critically analyze a paper that is published in the biomedical literature that is discussing masks, if you dare to even analyze it and discuss it and critique it, you get labeled as an anti-masker. That's because you had the audacity of even criticizing a paper that is published. And that's where I struggle with. I'm saying I should be allowed to criticize anything and debate anything. Yeah, that's where I'm going to push back on you, Chadi, a little bit. Like, I think uh, I see where you're going. You're expecting respect and courtesy. That never really was... That was never... <laughs> I don't think we ever had a right. A, I don't think we have a right to it. B, I don't think it ever was there, to be perfectly honest with you. And C, I don't. I, mean, I think you have to just be a, be a little thick-skinned. I think the master, there was a lot on the master base. Uh, John Mandrola brought it up. Uh, John Mandrola is a very nice guy, and he's you know he. He's you mean a, white supremacist John Mandrola? Because that's yes. what Twitter said. Yeah. Okay. He, that that he, John Mandrola. Okay. Yeah. That, he, he reminds me of a very nice Midwesterner. Sort of. He's person. such a he's such a nice guy. Yeah. I mean, come on, John Mandrola is the no, nicest. The, the, the it's, nice it's, it's why about... I I prefer the Midwest to where I am. Uh, John Mandrola is pancake syrup. He just coats everything, makes it all nice and good. Right. He, he, he said he, he said his piece. He, he he tagged me on a couple of them, <laughs> thereby exposing me to the mob as well. I thought, Usually, thanks, John. Thanks for that. And, and, I, I, and, you know, I, I said to him that masks should be used for precautionary principle, which is what I yes. believe. Right. That's so there the was answer. that. That's there, the answer. There, there Can I just that. let me let me argue for Chadi's side for a second, because I actually am, I agree with Chadi here, which is all four of us wear masks. I wear it all the time. You know, it's I wear it at work and I wear it in my personal life and it's not a big deal. It's like and people are like, why do you wear masks? I was like, why do I wear pants? You know, I wear pants because that's the thing to do. And I wear masks because that's the thing to do. And I, And in part because of as Chadi says, it's an easy thing to do, precautionary principle. But let's talk about the Danish mask study. The Danish mask study, the editorialists themselves write, this study shows that, you know, it would have worked if more people wore masks. It doesn't show that. And, 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 and what's his name? Carl Hennigan wrote that article that says, the Danish mask study finds no significant effect from wearing masks, which I believe is factually technically accurate. I mean, that's not, it did find no significant, it was not statistically significant effect. It, it, of course, it could not rule out a smaller effect size, but he's technically accurate and Facebook labels that fake news, like literally puts a label on it. Because why? Because the mob just pressured Facebook into saying like, this guy is bad for society. And so you, you really can't have a conversation. That study does exclude the possibility that masks have a 50% or more relative risk reduction, which is uh, which would be unheard of. Like nobody believed it was that big. Well, actually, no, some people probably believed it was that big, but I didn't believe it was that big. For the for the wearer, it doesn't test the hypothesis of does it spread it to others. But you can't you can't have this conversation on Twitter, I think, at all. Like, you know, I'll just give you one example. The other day I I posted um you know, everyone's posting the selfies. Chadi, I didn't see your did you, where's your selfie of you getting the vaccine? Did I'm you don't have a large deltoid like Sorab does. So, because <laughs> if you don't, if you don't post a selfie, my understanding is it's not an effective vaccine. It only is effective if you post a selfie. So, well, if Sally, if Sally posts a selfie, I'll post selfie. 
Sally, do it. I haven't gotten mine yet. I'm I'm kind of a little annoyed because I got clinic tomorrow in person. But um, so anyway, so anyway, so um, uh, my tweet was all these people are posting selfies, and you know it's meant to get other people in, in, you know excited about getting the vaccine. But one of the unintended consequences is people can see who who's in the pecking order, who's getting it first, and who's getting it last. And I got a lot of people emailing me and messaging me, and they're pissed off. They're like, why is somebody who doesn't see patients face to face? or somebody you know, not as high risk as someone else getting it before the other person. That's the kind of messages I'm getting. And so I tweeted something like, just to say, you know, selfies, um, you know, it used to be this feel good thing to encourage the message, you know, to get people out. Um, but, you know, it's really, now it's turning people into a debate about like who gets first preference. And my feed is just filled with the usual insipid Twitter comments saying, oh, this is anti-vax or, um, you know, misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm like, look, I I'm as eager as the next guy to get this vaccine, but we can still, we I wanted to talk about who should go first, who should go second. Should it always be um, uh, the chief medical officer, the chief financial officer, should they be first or second or, you know, the residents or, you know, what, what should the order be? But nobody wants to have that conversation. They just want to, you know, find some polar thing and label you with that and, and you yeah, know. I mean, vaccine distribution is a, a taboo almost. Sally, I mean, you're, you're on social media, you're on Twitter and, and, and so forth. Do you feel that as, um, do you feel that there are certain subjects that are taboo to discuss and to debate? I want to move to a different topic, but I want to finish with that. A lot of them. A lot of them. <laughs> I feel there, there are a lot of them. Yeah. In fact, um, well, another thing, I've been a little bit on this Tamur Quran binge, but uh, another thing that I encountered that he said was when things become unthinkable, and things are now becoming unthinkable. And we can all think about what some of those unthinkable things they are. They then become unthought and pushes them out even farther. I'm not, I'm not inclined to think that that's healthy. A comment about what that I said about lawyers. Yeah, I grew up and my father was a lawyer. Lawyers do debate and they also, and I've been saying this repeatedly the last few months, they have to be able to articulate both sides of an issue. That's that's real debating. You have to be able to you have to understand your opponent's position and you have to be able to articulate it. And that is really lost. And that Danish mask study was idiotic. And it <laughs> the only thing it proved was that the smaller the issue, because it it was a little stupid study. It's an important issue, but it was a little stupid study. And oh my God, the carrying on about it. And so it was like the smaller the issue, the louder the noise about it. I couldn't believe how much carrying on there was about that that silly so-called study. I think um, the biggest issue, Sarab, is that I feel like if we want to discuss anything pertaining to COVID-19, people assume that you are... Um, you are really not a believer in science and so forth. Like, I mean, as an example, I mean, can I po can I say that I, I'm? I mean, I will take the vaccine if it's offered me tonight or tomorrow. But I admit I don't have data on long-term efficacy or toxicity. So, as an individual person, I would say I believe my, the benefit I will garner from the vaccine is more than the risk. But I need to acknowledge that. I have no idea whether the toxicity or the adverse events or the side effects or even the efficacy will be the case, the same case in a year from now. And I don't feel like it say that because people will say, my goodness, how can you not trust the efficacy of the vaccine? Well, I just don't have enough long-term data. 
which takes me to the concept of trade-offs. Am I off here? I mean, do you feel I can mention that publicly? Of course, I am right now that I am on a podcast that's going to air, but at least uh, we have a chance to debate it. I feel if I say that uh, on Twitter, I would be, uh, I would get a sledgehammer. What? <laughs> Yeah, but you see, the thing, the thing, Tari, so I'm pushing back on you because I disagree with you. I think what you're seeing at the moment is probably the most um, vigorous disputes in a democracy. You're seeing the healthiest nature of democracy. And democracy never said that people aren't going to oppose you. Democracy never said that people aren't going to be nasty to you. I wrote a piece in American Thinker, which is a very conservative media, saying that that guy who... Uh, wasn't censored, you know. He, you know, the, the one who uh, was Firefox, Firefox's um, a CEO who supported uh, who, who supported a proposition against gay marriage, but then he had to leave uh, Firefox because uh, of the um, mob. I said that's not censorship. That's not fascism. He could have stayed there. He would have made less money, but he could have stayed there. But he wanted, you know, his company wanted to make more money, so they bowed to the mob. You can't call that fascism. I mean, that's, you know, definitions are important. See, if you posted something like that, questioning the long-term efficacy of the vaccine, I would be the first to oppose you. And I would actually list down 10 things that you do that whose long-term efficacy you don't know. You don't know the long-term <laughs> efficacy of COVID. My point here isn't that you're right or wrong. My point here is that you're putting something out there that people don't agree with and people are going to oppose you. Some will do it uh, nicely. Some will do it with a little smiley face. Some will do it with a little bit of sarcasm. This is how I, this is how but, I, but sorry, but I guess, I guess my issue yeah. and I, I mean, you know, you're, uh, uh, you know, I think, um, I think my issue, I'm not saying people shouldn't oppose me. I think what I've noticed, and again, maybe I'm becoming too sensitive, Sarab, in my old age. <laughs> I feel like a couple of years ago, people would oppose each other. It was just a little bit more fun. They were a little bit more polite. Yeah. It was it just, I feel it's a little bit different. Am I being too sensitive, Vinay? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm on your side on this issue. It's obviously it's a subjective feeling that we both have, but you know, you and I, uh, we're on the same wavelength. Like for instance, I mean, I think that like if you posted what you said, you would, you know, your idea, which by the way is actually unimpeachable. It's a factually correct statement. How could there be long-term safety information when the trial has literally not followed people that long? But if you posted that, you would not. People wouldn't argue with you on that point. They would call you an anti-vax person. They um, uh, they would get other people to agree that you are an anti-vax person, and they would probably bully you. And they may find out where you work, and they would call your employer. Um, and I think that's those are the tactics they would use. And in that group of people, the thousand people who I think would pounce on your tweet eventually, I bet 950 of them would not have actually read and understood what you actually said. And and I think you know maybe fast five years ago, if you had the same tweet, I think maybe six or eight people would have interacted with you. I think. I mean, I agree with Sarb that they would have been a range of things from, you know, assholery to like more polite disagreement, but something in between. Um, but I don't think anyone would have brought in, you know, a mob, a mob of 20, 200 people. I don't think anyone would have called you anti-vax. They would have just said, you know, they might have said like, you're overthinking it. Don't worry about long-term side effects. Why are you so worried? It's just a lipid membrane and an mRNA. It's going to degrade, Chadi. Come on. It's not going to do anything bad. Like they might have said those sorts of things. But but now I think you would be called anti-vax, like flat out labeled and you'd be done. You'd pack up your bag. You would have no career in healthcare. How about, how about this like, you know, tagging your employer and calling your employer I mean, crazy, Sally, um, as an outsider for, for the academic community and, and met Twitter, 
How do you view this when people disagree and then they end up calling the dean or the administration or whoever you work with? Yeah, well, one of the highlights of my entire year has been our Penrad book, book chats. And we had one scheduled uh, for about a week ago, a Milan Kundera book called The Joke, and which we assigned to ourselves oh, two or three months ago. Seemed like a great idea um, over littler things. And then, and it's about, the brief premise is a member of the Communist Party, university student, 20 years old, makes a bad joke in a postcard to his girlfriend. The Communist Party finds this. They call him to a tribunal, and uh, it's just, and he is almost instantly thrown out of the party, out of the university, and into a five-year labor camp. It ruins the rest of his life. It went, it, the book goes on from there, and it's really quite an interesting book. But anyway, and I love anything that has to do with communist parties. And uh, oh boy, so we were going to have... Yeah, nobody take that wrong. But anyway, we were going to have a discussion about this. And then a Twitter bad joke, very bad joke, blew up in an unbelievable way in the shortest time I've ever seen. And that led, as far as I know, to the person uh, losing a lot of position and reputation and privileges. And we decided that we couldn't have the book chat then because we didn't want to cause any more anger or pain to anybody who had had either. It was just, we just didn't want to open it up. And uh, we'd advertised the book chat for some time, but nobody seemed to remember that, which was fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, but when it, yeah, the calling the employer thing, uh, that that's such a last resort. I haven't been able really to think of a time when you would do it unless you saw somebody careening down a freeway uh, at 80 miles an hour drunk, um, you know, something like that, maybe. Anyway. And that and that's where I was talking to Sarah about, like, I feel like I, I think, Sarah, you were there on Twitter since 2014. I think three, four years ago folks would not have called your employer for for whatever. Like, even if they disagree with you, even if you were, look, I mean, 30% of people in the U.S. don't take vaccines. I mean, I, I don't know, the, I, the 30%, I'm just throwing this away. I have no, could be 20%, could be 35%, I don't know. But there's clearly a percent of the U.S. population who are, don't, who do not take vaccines. And that's, you know, I mean, they exist, but they don't, you know, you don't call their employers, right? I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, help us understand your view on that. I don't think you'd get in trouble with the vaccine debate, actually. there, It's too, especially the way you framed it, Chadi, as something long-term effects. Nobody knows them. I'm not worried about it at all. And it'll, it'll make itself manifest one way or another, and we have time to deal with it at that point one way or another. I think, I don't think that's as hot button an issue as a lot of these others. Norman, wasn't it Norman Wang? When yeah, I, was I was thinking Norman, about the same example. Yes, Norman, uh, Norman yeah. Wang, yeah, publishes a paper suggesting that affirmative action should possibly be time limited, like five years out. Like, do you want to do this forever or do you want to put a time limit on it? It was about an 11 page paper. I happened to read it. 
and people were uh, just went absolutely crazy over it. And he lost his position. He lost his, he, they didn't throw him out of, I think it was university of Pittsburgh. Yeah. They didn't throw him out of out of there completely, but he did lose his position and he was forbidden from working with students. Yeah. Um, the, these, these are, um, these are dangerous uh, kinds of things. It's a, it's a, there's a culture of complete unforgiveness. And this is another quote from the Kundera book. You can tell I love my quotes, but from the joke, to live in a world where no one is forgiven and all is irredeemable is to live in hell. And mm. yeah, that's quite a, there's a, a lot in, yeah, it's a great quote. Yeah. And, uh, and by I the think way, that, I mean, can I? Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to just say, by the way, for listeners that, uh, Sorab's computer died. It is 2020, and he just texted me that he will need five minutes to log back 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 on. So we have five minutes to talk about him and how bad and awful of a person he is. Go ahead, Vinay. <laughs> Did you hear his microphone quality on my podcast? This is two in a row, Sarabja. He screwed up two in a row. Well, at least he, um, yeah, I, I, at least he has a good microphone. Yeah, at least now he's upgraded his microphone. Lucky you, Chadi. Lucky you. I could hardly hear what he was saying. I know. None of us could. I cried. I think that this example that Sally raised is, um, you know, a quite interesting example. I mean, let's just look at the facts here. This guy, Norman Wang, EP professor, wrote an article that I believe is, you know, I think it's fair to say it was critical of uh, of, of, of race-based affirmative action policies. Um, it, it talked a lot about Supreme Court precedent, and I think it was very in line with the John Roberts Court, which is increasingly moving away from that. He published it in, what, JAHA, the Journal of the American Heart Association or something like that. I mean, uh, 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 an actual journal, um, and and the article was doing what journal articles do, Chadi, what yours and my articles do, which is nobody was reading that article. Not a no one was reading it. And then one day, somebody on the internet found this article, and they were pissed off by it, and they tweeted and say, "Look at this son of a bitch tweeting this thing, you know, writing this thing." And and the irony of this whole situation is, I actually disagree with everything Norman Wang wrote in that article, and I had that lawyer um, from University of Michigan who who I I'm much more in line with because I disagree with this court, and I'm much more left of center on this issue, and I think we ought to have. Have race-based affirmative action policies like it's I certainly don't think it's constitutionally prohibited and so I had her argue the other side and so like in my world in a world of just a couple years ago I think the right thing to do is you read an article like this you write a rebuttal you say what he's saying that's wrong or inaccurate but you know it quickly escalated um lots of people said what he was saying is uh is very very bad and the journal the university asked the journal to retract it and and things Sally said he was he's been professionally punished um, and then, then my understanding is on the Department of Education opened an investigation of, of academic freedom violations a few months ago, like a month ago. And then just this week, I read an article in the, in the Pittsburgh Gazette saying um, that he is litigating. He's suing the university, he's suing the chair, he's suing um, the, 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 the cardiology chairperson, he's suing some other faculty member who um, disparaged him. He, he, he's fighting this in court. And so I guess my point here is this... Like if you see something you disagree, you disagree with, and and I and I actually do disagree with this guy. Um, the wrong answer is to try to get them fired and and lose their title and retract the article. That's the wrong answer, because in this case I think it's going to backfire. I think he's probably going to win this litigation because he's got a really strong case. This was a, you know, I mean it didn't go through due process. Anyway, um, to your earlier point, the academic yeah. infrastructure and how it's just changing. I think you, you that's one of the first thing you highlighted about this year that academically things have changed a little bit. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've never heard of papers getting retracted in one day. 
I mean, uh, you know, retraction is a is an arduous process where something is it's a court, it's a courtroom case, and it has to go through the proper process um, before it's retracted. And I guess I mean, I would just summarize this case by saying that, um, you know, for those of us who are um, we all believe in whatever issues we believe in. And I actually would say I disagree. You know, I want to say again for the record, because I think the hard part about this is like I'm arguing for this guy's right to say the thing I disagree with. I think when you want to win an argument with somebody, you'll never win an argument if you try to silence, intimidate, and bully people who disagree with you. You've got to change their mind. I mean, this is true for whatever argument we're talking about, from cancer drugs and whether or not overall survival should be the endpoint, you know, something that you and I have, you know, we have some disagreements about here or there, um, whether or not accelerated approval should be used. Like, I'm not going to be successful if I just say, Chadi Nabhan, bad guy, hate him, because you're not a bad guy. We both want the same thing, whatever's best for patients. We disagree on how to get there. And the answer is we should use evidence and reason and logic and data to persuade each other. And, and you know, just like Saurabh and you had you know, dialogue before, this is how we used to do things. But we live in a moment in time where I think people are deeply frustrated. I, I, I can't really put my finger on what's going on. I think you know, there's no people are very, they're secular people who are inventing a new God. Um, you know, they're secular people who are acting very re like religious um, fanatics in some cases. Um, they, um, they're really frustrated. People are tired and fed up at being at home. They're frustrated and, and angry and they're just looking for, I mean, I sometimes feel like Twitter is like the Roman Coliseum. Every week we have to drag out a gladiator and have him fight a lion <laughs> to death. I mean, I think we're just doing it for our entertainment. Let uh, him die for our entertainment. And that's what we're doing. We're just with their reputation instead. Sarab might be next, actually. But Sarab, uh, uh, <laughs> while you were fixing your computer and your, your, your battery, um, what you missed is we were talking from an academic infrastructure. We, we end up talking about the Norman Wang debacle. And obviously, we don't have a lot of time to go over everything, but I think- Can I throw in, Chadi, can I throw in one quick thing in response to Vinay's comment about the affirmative action? Because at the same time, the way this, this has been put out of the realm of public debate in many forums, look at the California measure that was on the ballot for affirmative action just this November. California, which is about as liberal a state as you could get, and that measure went down like 66% against it. Yeah. So how is, how is that for private truth, public lies? In public, people say one thing. At the voting booth, they said something else. I think, I mean, I, I disagree with the voters as well of California because I think that proposition should have passed. Um, but your point is well taken. I mean, people are repeatedly on ballot measures. It's been an unpopular thing. I think the reason I fundamentally disagree is I think if people really saw how admission decisions are made, and they think that of all the many, many characteristics we are allowed to consider in, in, in whatever ways, the one characteristic we can't consider is race. I think people would think that that is sort of an absurd proposition. Um, but I, your point is well taken that when directly put to vote, I mean, people voted in a different way. So Rob, when I talk about uh, censorship, I mean, the Norman Wang issue, briefly, when you look at it with a critical eye, is this censorship or this is not censorship? How do you, where do you classify the Norman Wang dilemma on the spectrum of censorship, disagreement, to whatever it is? I was going to ask you before my computer broke down, have you read The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith? No, I haven't read that. Uh, no. I know who Adam Smith is. I don't think I read that. <laughs> Well, neither have I, so that makes four of us. <laughs> but I do know what he said. He basically said that we care most for things that are very proximate to us, and we could care less for something that is 
very distant from us. So we're more worried about somebody being hurt by a pin who's right next to us than somebody who might be killed by a cattle uh, thousands of miles away. So in a sense, social media, what it does is it creates that scenario where the where, where what Adam Smith spoke about, the distance and the sentiment increases um, quite disproportionately where you don't know this person from Adam or Raj and he's bleating on and you don't give a shit about this person's fate. Why would you? Because you don't know this person. So there is this um, subliminal, you can call it hate or, or, um, or vileness or nastiness or just indifference. I think it's just indifference. We have a very big crowd on social media today compared to what we had in 2017. 2017, there were like 10 to 15 people that were regularly arguing with each other. Uh, if I look back, I've looked back at a few of my tweets back in, from 2017, because uh, I archive a lot of these just to go back to know what I was thinking and the topic. And uh, I realized, well, they're just the same bunch of people. Now that's not the case. Now you're going to be exposed to a lot more people. And the comparison to Roman gladiators is probably accurate, at least in, in, a, in, a, in a metaphorical sense. So firstly, that's, that's a big issue. Second, so when you have, we, we haven't really tested this type of discussion in big crowds. Now, if you recall from philosophy, Socrates you know, killed himself because he had just a few people that were opposing him. He didn't like have the whole of Greece opposing him. I don't know what he would have done if he was on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't have lasted a week, Sarah. Yeah, he would have, you know, so thin-skinned. One, one quote tweet from, uh, from somebody with lots of followers, he would have probably gone a little uh, decompensated. So there's that. Then the question is, what, 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 what exactly is going on? If we pass it a bit, what we're seeing is that we're seeing people who are using power over other people. And that's also been something that's not new. In the past, people would use power like they did in the book, The Joke, that we will discuss at some point, although not in this month. Um, they used their power in terms of a party power, one over the other, by looking for weaknesses, by looking for absence of loyalty or other defects in character. And that's the same thing that you're seeing right now. You're just seeing a usage of power, which I think I don't know much about Norman Wang's situation at his institute, but I suspect that there may very well be dynamics out there that we don't appreciate. That doesn't make it right, but ultimately what it comes down to is like politics, all censorship is local. And your local censorship happens when you have people in power uh, who don't like you, who think you're a competition, who think you're a threat, uh, who think that you disrespect them. I think the thing that most gets to people is when you don't take them seriously or that we don't take their seriousness seriously. That drives them up the wall, people with a lot of egos. And people that do that, uh, who don't take other people seriously, are at risk of being attacked. And I, so I think what I'm trying to get out over here is that this is a very much of a human nature that has always been thus. And in many ways, we're living in an age today where it's most dispersed. If you get bullied, you can write a book saying how you were bullied and that can become a story, that can become a bestseller, that can actually become a movie. 
That's not something that would happen in, uh, in, in Moscow. All that would have happened is if you were disillusioned, you'd go to the Gulag archipelago and there'd be dogs chasing you. And maybe I'm letting my imagination get, get a bit carried away, but I think, I, I think we're confusing unpleasant people, unpleasantness, uh, just the general lack of civility with, with censorship. And I agree that all of those are bad and I agree that people tagging your employer is bad, but ultimately, why does an employer give a shit about what the mob says? It's, it's again, an expression of the market. This is your market in full dynamics. I mean, bring back the days of elitism, bring back the days where I couldn't give a shit what the masses said because I was really much, I'm gonna sound very elitist and maybe like an asshole, but I'm proud to be both. I don't give a shit <laughs> what you think. Because so, you, you don't have the ability to judge me, but that's not the case now. Now you're dependent on the masses. My entire Twitter um, you know, presence depends on the masses. So as Jesus of Nazareth said, who lives by the sword, dies by the sword, we're in a situation that shouldn't surprise us, that we have reaped some very good things from it, and it's a double-edged sword. So I'm not, I'm not panicking. I'm... I'm realizing that if you're going to go into the world and rely on 20 to 30,000 people or benefit from them, um, then you're going to get attacked by them uh, as well. So one issue I really want to want to talk about, and these are all good points, and it really bothers me. Um, and we all know I shouldn't be bothered. So whenever, and this goes actually to Vinay has been uh, critical of screening and, and me and Vinay have had some disagreements about this, although um, I'll admit I'm not a screening expert per se that, you know, in terms of uh, all of the policy issues. But one of the things that Vinay, you, you make a point of is, you know, we look at screening effectiveness when we measure overall mortality as a society, right? I mean, as a, you know, and, and that may not happen in one year, you know, could be, you know, you have to look at longer term. And I actually take that argument, um, you know, I think it's a very valid argument. So whenever we take that argument, Shouldn't we also, when we talk about COVID-19 and the policies that we have been implementing as a healthcare society, that the effectiveness of the policies that we are applying in 2020, whether it's school closure, whether whatever we are doing, we will really capture the fruits of these policies in 2022 or 2023. And as a society, if we end up in 2023 recognizing that we lost more people from the policies that were implemented for COVID-19 than COVID-19, then we actually failed. And looking only at 2020 overall mortality is short-sighted, or am I completely missing the boat here? Because, because I realize, by the way, I realize, and I need to stop because you're, you need to speak. I realize that we have to act based on the facts that exist today, right? We don't know what's gonna happen later. But I just want some humbleness and saying, okay, we're going to react now. But, you know, if we have more people dying from suicide and alcoholism and depression in 2023 as a society, then whatever we did in 2020 was wrong. How do we assess our policies intervention in 2020? When can we say if we've succeeded or failed? That's such a brilliant question. I mean, I think it's just simply brilliant because, uh, and it's also something that's kind of taboo to talk about, which is one, I think you're absolutely right. This is like uh, cabbage versus stenting. You don't care about 30-day outcomes. You care about five-year outcomes. You know, you got to look at the curve, both the early mortality differences and the long-term mortality differences. I mean, potentially. 
I don't actually know which way the curves are going to go here. So don't take it too literally, my analogy. But I think you're right. you got to look at a long horizon and you have to ask yourself, what would the different policies be and what would their impact on these outcomes be in different scenarios? And I think if we are really honest, I would admit that I'm not smart enough to answer that question because I only know things about medicine and maybe a little public health and a little bit of screening, but I don't know things about school policy and uh, long-term economic outcomes and despair that comes if a generation of kids who are poor minority kids can have no upward mobility. I don't know all those things. So that's why I've tried to bring on you know, my podcast, you know, people with economics domain and these kinds of domains. But I think that I think you're so one, I think you're right on the issue that policies must be judged based on counterfactuals with long time horizons. The second point is, I think um, it's very difficult to have this discussion, especially in Twitter, where you will be mob attacked for even saying some of these things, I think. Um, third, I think many people talk with a lot of confidence that they know the exact right policy in California this moment or Denver last week or South Dakota a month ago. And I think that any honest broker would acknowledge like the Dunning-Kruger effect that there's actually a lot you don't know and maybe you shouldn't be so certain of your of your conclusion. Um, and so I agree with you. I think it's, it's, it's trade-offs that are almost um, too much for any one person to process. We should have brought an interdisciplinary team together. We should have brought people who are, you know, vocal proponents of lockdown, but even somebody like John, I think should be at the table because he's a critic of, uh, or he has been a critic of repeated lockdown. I think he agreed with the first one um, because, you know, sometimes you invite somebody to talk with, um, you know, who doesn't agree with you just to temper your own enthusiasm and make your publication, make your thinking better. This is one you know, quick example. When I write a publication, I, I want to somehow bring a co-author who disagrees with me a little because they change some of the words that help, you know, make it more accurate and honest. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question, which I think is very smart, which is that we won't know for, I think because of schools, we won't know for at least 100 years whether or not we made all the right choices now or not. I suspect on that issue of schools, we will have really screwed that up massively. And the downstream consequences of that decision will will haunt us and this country for decades. Sally, what do you think? I'm hoping that's not true about schools, but I'm kind of afraid it is. I have another question I'm going to throw out here because I wanted to ask it anyway. I've spent a lot of time in nursing homes and memory places, and I know they're the first to get the vaccine. And there's almost always people in there who are on hospice. Do they are they, they going to be vaccinated? This is the kind of thing I mentioned earlier that, that nobody, if there's been any conversation about this, it hasn't been in public. And I'm not the only one that I know who would like to know, but I know that seems like a trivial question, but I also think it's a real one. So Rob, am I, I mean, am I off by saying that uh, I, I endorse what we're doing, what we're trying to do, but I'm, I want to be humble enough to realize that maybe in 2023, we look back and we say we screwed up. Yeah, well, there are two things over here. First is the uncertainty of the policy decision-making, and that's always going to be uncertain since you can't look at the future. Uh, that's, a very, uh, that's a very deep topic. We can, we'd end up in a tangent, but in terms of the theme of this discussion, which is that, is there censorship and are there certain topics that are off table? I would say that that is one of those topics that may seem to you that's off table, but I don't think it is. It's a topic that riles people up because people uh, are afraid that any loss of conformity when it comes to 
the economic lockdown and social distancing will prolong the pandemic. That's not entirely wrong. If, if we were 100% compliant in the first two, three weeks, like the Chinese were when Wuhan went down, things might have been different. I don't know if they would have been, they might have been. But to your point about the, the nature of the conversation, I think where you're going to have maximum uncertainty plus politicization, uh, you're going to get some pushback. And some people will call you, use epithets like curvy idiot um, or you know, a MAGA guy or a conservative. And I know that that seems that that makes the debate that completely sullies the debate that makes the whole thing nullified. That's a very bad taste in the mouth. But I would say that there are many people who aren't like that, who are actually following the debate, who want to follow the debate. I just don't think Twitter is the medium for it. What's the medium? The medium has to be some form of long form or, or, or podcast. There have been, you know, there are lots of discussions that people have in which people take opposing views, articulate those, and then put counter views, and it's possible. Twitter is simply not the medium for that. And, it, and we shouldn't be surprised, even at the time when, for example, I would discuss with um, Vinay about the relative contributions of RCT and bioplausibility, I think we were both kind of going in circles. What we'd need for that type of discussion would be much more, much longer form discussion yeah. of any form, yeah. because only then can you say, "Here's where I agree with you, and here's where the impasse is, and I, here's where the uncertainty is." And it's just not possible on Twitter. I, I think, mean, like for example, I'll give you one example. I'm, I'm sorry to I'll interrupt. You. I think the attraction of Twitter has been that you actually reach a wider medium. So, in other yes. words. In other words, even if you write a blog or letter to the editor to the NEJM, I mean, honestly, it's probably less likely to be read than if you tweet. And, and it just a, it's a heavy medium with folks who are interested in science and medicine. I think that's why people post on there, because you reach a wider audience. That's why. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's the Adam Smith problem, where the more dispersed the audience is, the less likely they are to give a shit about you, or more likely they are to be indifferent to you. But in terms of that, my from what I've noticed uh, is that I've been, uh, I feel that tutorials destroyed my blogging to a certain extent, <laughs> because blogging, I used yeah. to put in a lot of effort making my point, and tutorials just, it just seemed too easy. I mean, you could just thread in eight, eight uh, times 140 or 280 words. And so it's not supposed to be easy. That's my point. These discussions, like for example, a recent discussion I had where I had a bunch of people, I just thought, listen, there's just no point. All that's going to happen is, so I told one guy offline, it was about Kashmir, and I had, uh, and I told one guy uh, of Pakistani origin, I said, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're, you're going to try and um, make me sound like a hypocrite, and I'm going to try and make you sound like a hypocrite. And we're both going to look like dicks, although in each other's eyes, we're going to basically think that we've triumphed. But for everybody else, we're going to be fodder and we'll look like dicks. This is not a conversation you can have on Twitter. This is a deep conversation that requires deep knowledge of the subcontinent, and neither of us know what, how much knowledge we possess. And so I feel that in a lot of these domains that 
you're going in, you're going in with uh, with an AK-47, and you have a bunch of Lilliputians attack you with little, um, you know, little uh, pins and think that they've won, but they haven't. This is really a very superficial medium, and I treat it with superficiality now. I treat it like a joke. I behave like a joke on it. <laughs> I'm not always taken like a joke, which is itself disturbing, but I'm a joke. As far well, as let I'm me concerned. make, I, let me, I just have two things I want to say, because you, you, you make me think of two things. One, on, on the issue of the COVID policy, I, I want to say for the record that one of the things I think is under discussed is many of the legislative and governmental policies, I think do very little to the actual behavioral change. Like when you, when we finally get all the data, we've already had some peaks, but if you look at cell phone data, a county that institutes some shutdown mandate, et cetera, and the county next door that doesn't, often the behavior of the people is quite similar because when you're scared shitless about SARS-CoV-2, you stay in your house, you know? It does, so, so the delta on the intervention is gonna be small. So that'll also translate into a lot of these sort of debates about whether or not it paid off or not. Anyway, it'll take decades for that to work out. But the next thing to the heart of the Twitter discussion, I just wanna say, I mean, in my mind, some of the things that, that make it shitty is one, um, all of us are like, we've, we've all met in, actually, um, I, I've met two out of you. I don't think Sarbev, I haven't met in person, but we've met in person. When you meet somebody in person- Not missing you much, see, by the way. <laughs> you know, <missing. laughs> Chadi's much taller than you. The Chadi's a very tall guy. How tall are you, 6'4"? What are you, how tall are you? 6'4", yeah. yeah. So, so that's the surprise. Um, um, and and uh, Sally, I won't say anything, um, but, uh, but we've met in person. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think when you meet somebody face to face, and versus see them on Twitter, Twitter flattens people. You, 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 people become uh, just sort of a caricature of themselves and, and more easy to sort of criticize. The other the central problem I see is um, the anonymity. No offense to you, Bartles, um, because I don't think it's the anonymity in and of itself. It's what people do with anonymity. Sally Bartles is one of the few people who handle anonymity with grace. Um, who 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 are anonymous but speak as if they were you know um, face to face with you. Um, I think most people who are anonymous are are just total assholes about it. I mean, I think they carry themselves in ways you would never get away with face to face because you, they have no reputation. Nobody knows who they are or what they are. You know, and I think that's that's part of the problem. It, it's it's very short and quick, so people read it. But the downside is. Some people apparently have difficulty reading because they don't actually see what you say and respond to it. They respond to what they think you said and they flatten you and they think of you as a unidimensional person. And, um, you know, I don't read all the things about me anymore. They've gotten to be too many. But uh, whenever I do, somebody sends me something, it's almost always like just a factual lie. Like, I did not say that. That's not what my article says. Um, people lie about like, uh, I, I do I do attend in clinic. I do do, you know, like the lie. They're like, he doesn't see patients in clinic. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, what, and where do you even get that in your mind? But anyway, um, so I think those are the things that make it thorny. And then the mob behavior. And, and, the, and the one thing I want to say about mob behavior, maybe I, I want to ask what Saurabh thinks. Um, many of the times that hundreds of people pile on one person, the person who throws the first stone, they have a pre-existing disagreement with the victim that the audience doesn't know. They have previously quarreled. They have a previous beef. And I was reading about the Salem witch trials that, that one of the dynamics was the accuser often had some grievance with the person they accused of being a witch or something like that. I think you see a similar dynamic on Twitter that there's a pre-existing disagreement and this person sees an opportunity, smells an opportunity to bring the mob in uh, to call the employer and do these kind of nasty, despicable things. And, I, and let the record state that despite the fact Sarb John and I vehemently disagreed about RCTs, 
I only ever asked the dean of Penn to fire him three or four times. Never more than three. <laughs> no. <laughs> Never more than three or four times. Never more. You know, you should you should do a tutorial on the Salem witch trials because you seem to know more about it than most of us, and I think it would be. <laughs> No, no, really. Are you, you joking? You <laughs> no, I'm serious. You you mentioned this earlier, and I was like, I didn't know that. And it's like, I would like, I didn't know, and I would like to know more. I wonder if it might resonate with a few people. And I wonder, Actually, maybe I, I'll have to, I'll have to educate myself more. Maybe I I'm not know about it either. I, I, you got me something to look up today. Okay. Well, look. Yeah, Vinay, I want to get to what Vinay said about pre yes. animosity. That's absolutely true. And that's true not only on Twitter, but of the local pushback that you have, you know. Uh, so I think I think that what we're seeing is expression of human nature uh, in many ways, and um, the misrepresentation, the straw man arguments—they're just—they're just lazy heuristics. They're just lazy behavior for people that don't want to um, argue with you. It's much easier demonizing you, and. To a large extent, I, I think the, the person I would use as a hypothetical is Christopher Hitchens. And I think I know that uh, Bartels uh, admires him and certainly me and Vinay admire him as well. Yeah. Um, had Christopher Hitchens been on Twitter, I don't think he would have succeeded. Uh, his strength was you know, long form writing and he could destroy an argument very well. Um, he there were lots of comments to him, but that didn't matter. You should see his debates, the one with uh, George Galloway, um, even though I agreed with Galloway and not Hitchens about the Iraq war, but the way Hitchens carried it out was phenomenal. But had he been on Twitter, he would have probably been, uh, you know, he would have just taken one person that to uh, disagree with him, say something sarcastic, and then get their little mob out. Uh, and, uh, and I think, I think he would have been frustrated. I think he would have probably done the same, and it would have come down to the same sort of thing. You'd have probably done the same. I think there are a lot of people that struggle on Twitter who are very good writers. Niall Ferguson is another one. Uh, he uh, he gets a lot from uh, the economic blogosphere. Um, he's conservative and he's, well, I'm not sure if he's conservative, but he certainly has, um, he's certainly very proud of... Uh, he's in the Hoover Trump. Institute. He's a Hoover Institute oh, guy. Yes, That'll Hoover, get you in trouble these Hoover. days. Hoover Institute, yeah. yes. Yes, that's, that's such that's, that's such a nonsense to dismiss an entire institution and in an entire university because it's affiliated <laughs> with them. Hoover Institution is not the Heritage Foundation, which is a yes, hack, fake think tank. And but hey. Hoover Institution is. Do we really want? No, I shouldn't ask this. Do we really want only one line of thought permissible in most things? And I'm afraid I get a giant yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people would say yes. That's the crux of the issue. I think that's the crux of what frustrates. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've enjoyed listening to Sara because I think he's quite eloquent on this, but the crux of what frustrates Chadi and me is uh, I think this idea that there is one canonical party line. Um, it was okay in February to say it was a nothing burger for SARS-CoV-2, but not okay in March and April. John said it in March and April where it was not okay. So we had to hang John Yonides, of course he's hung, but the people who said it in February, that was when it was okay to say it. It was okay in February and early March to say masks may even infect, it may even get yourself infected. As, as Fauci said on 16 minutes, that was okay to say, but by mid-March that was no longer okay to say. So we have to hang anyone who says it wrong there. Um, and, and the hypocrisy of it, I think is, and, 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 and the zeal of it, uh, the, the zealousness of it, I think, is what frustrates us. But I mean, Sarab is making interesting points, which is a point I can't refute, which is have people always behaved this way? 
perhaps that is the case. I haven't been around in all those years. Um, I just don't like how it is now. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Okay. Well, look, look, this is probably one of the longest podcasts I've ever taped, but there's no way anybody could beat uh, Benai in his podcast. But uh, we, I don't want to break the record. You mean in length? Only in length. <laughs> You, yeah, but uh, this is this is a lot of fun. I mean, honestly, I think we can go and talk for the next uh, hour, and it's just uh, fun to have a conversation and a dialogue. But uh, I want to make sure uh, we finish with each one of you have an opportunity to, I don't know, close with a couple of minutes into uh, final observations, and then what you look forward to in in the years to come. Personally, I'm just looking forward to seeing uh, Vinay get a haircut. I mean, personally, that's really all I want. <laughs> So uh, Sally, we'll go with you. Um, anything we missed that we should have covered maybe in terms of 2020 highlights and uh, uh, what do you want to see in 2021? You scared me when you um, said that in 2022 or 2023, we would debate, be debating what we did this year because I don't want this to take up the whole rest of the decade. This is, this is I want it to be over. Um, so I'm kind of joking and kind of not. I did see a piece yesterday, I think posted from KHN News. It might have been a Liz Sable piece. I think it was about things people had gotten wrong in the pandemic. And there were there was one quote from Paul Offit, the vaccine guy. And he said something that in April he said, I got this wrong. And he had this great quote. I don't remember it verbatim, but it was like, if, if you're going to be wrong, be spectacularly wrong and make a complete ass of yourself in front of thousands of people. And I thought that was refreshing. I don't think most people have um, the ability to laugh at themselves like that. And I thought he was laughing at himself. Anyway, what, what we, live in, we live in interesting times. And the whole premise of our joke book chat that is postponed is in part that um, is the book's actually about a whole lot of other things, but. Okay. Uh, Sarab, uh, anything we should have covered and what do you look forward in 2021? Yeah, I, I'm not, um, I'm not terribly despondent about 2020. I mean, I think there are, uh, I think it's been a tough year, but Purely in the in the realm of politicization, I've seen a force and a counterforce, and a very vigorous counterforce. And and honestly, one of the one of the um, uh, one of the most pleasurable things to have witnessed this year is Vinay, a person that is clearly on the left, taking stances that um, go very much against um, uh, his political brethren, so to speak. And there are lots of people like that, and uh, and 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 I think that's 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 uh, very good to see. That shows you that there's always a little bit of disagreement within the ranks. Uh, uh, and I think that when you look at the counterforce against the politicization, against the conformity, uh, I wouldn't say there's nothing to worry about. But I think that we're not in we're not in that bad a place. And what do you want to see in 2021? What are your wishes for 2021? This I want to I want to go to a bar, packed bar, and uh, actually and I want spread to spread SARS Cove too. You bastard! <laughs> you do want to know? <laughs> I, want to, I want to go to a jazz cafe. Jazz bar. Oh, wonderful. Binai, um, anything we should have covered and. Um, what you're looking forward in 2021. I gotta admit, I mean, I want to just make sure I uh, comment to what Sarab mentioned about um, you, your 
position. I think, uh, I mean, I'll admit, I mean, despite we've had our own disagreements in various topics, but I, I, I've, uh, I've been very impressed, honestly, with a lot of the um, things that you brought forward where you were willing to tackle difficult topics. I mean, I, I think the school topic you've had, uh, you were very passionate about, and you've had a lot of, you had a couple of podcasts on that, and um, you've written about, you've written, goodness, how many articles you've written. You, um, one of your articles um, that I've enjoyed actually was Thanksgiving article you wrote for MedPage. And uh, you were just trying to understand, you know, why people are not following um, uh, things. But anyway, uh, anything we should have covered and, uh, uh, and um, what do you look forward to next year? So I guess the last thought I had for you was how all the chaos around us has brought a number of us closer together. Um, Twitter has become a place where I tweet less externally and more you know, you and I and Saurav and, and Sally and others and, and, and many others people I'm in conversation with on the back end, either by phone or by text or by Twitter. It's changed from talking to the public to talking amongst ourselves about where we are in the world. And I think there's some things that have united all of us that I am very grateful for. Uh, I think we're all people who, who like to have a good laugh. We see the humor in life. And you know, no matter what people, where people are, where they agree or disagree, being funny is a jewel in the crown of life, and you got to treasure that. I mean, that's one of the most important things. Um, I all think of us, I th yeah, yeah. Say it, Sally. I, you you agree? I, I think <laughs> I agree a thousand percent. I think yeah. that should be obvious. Being if funny that's not is obvious. A... I've been doing Twitter wrong. <laughs> and 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 a lot of good jokes that uh, that you've you've you told me in my ear. Um, we, we all, I mean, even though we have our disagreements on a lot of these issues, we all see the middle ground, which is that look, we can disagree on Monday and Tuesday, but we can still get a drink and be friends and and argue and talk. And 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 I don't think you're a bad person for any of your views, right? Like that doesn't speak to your integrity as a person. Um, and we all agree on that. That like our personal integrity is one set of things, and our views on political, complex social political issues are another. They don't, they don't always you know mesh up. I think we are all people who, even though we're in totally different views on a lot of issues, we believe in trade-offs. There's some trade-offs in life and there's no scientist who's gonna answer them for you. You have to, you have to see what people value and what they want. And some trade-offs are, you know, tough trade-offs. Um, um, you know, and, and, and I think that that's something that we all agree in and we all are rationalists. Like, you know, when you see something, Chadi, you don't believe it just because somebody said it. You, you know, you wanna know why it's the case and why they believe what they believe. I believe that, Sarah believes that, Sally believes that. And so, you know, I guess it's brought us closer together, not just the four of us, but lots of us, um, you know, who previously we would argue tooth and nail about some stupid thing. In retrospect, it seems like our arguments were so small because we didn't know that the extremes, the extreme crazy views were so much far beyond our views. But I think we can, all agree, we can all agree that John Mandrola is a bad guy. <laughs> total asshole, total asshole. No, no. You know, he used to say, his most famous saying is uncertainties always outweigh certainties in medicine. And I've tweeted that out a hundred times, usually to phenomenal number of likes and phenomenal in my world, you know, like maybe six or seven. But anyway, um, it, that sort of disappeared this year. I also think, Benai, that the fact that a lot of conversations have moved to direct message conversations instead of the public sphere is an exa a perfect example of the private versus public, what you, the public yeah. silence, private conversations. And my, my most controversial view, maybe with all of you, 
is uh, I would actually support, I, I almost always support open debate much more than it is now. I think there's way too much intimidation, quiet intimidation that does silence things. I don't call it censorship, but um, it bothers me. And I would support, I would always support open that, but I would have supported a hard lockdown for two months in the beginning. Damn it, get it done, right? Authoritarian, democracy doesn't work. Sorry, I, I checked that longstanding liberal principle at the door several months ago. And I think I think that that's the big mistake that our country made. Yeah, And I've, I've really changed my mind about that. Let's hope for a better 2021. I want to thank you for really taking the time. This is this was great. I had a great time. I hope the listeners have a great time. Make sure you follow Plenary Session. Listen to the podcast. It is um, a very good podcast when it's aligned with my views. It's a horrible <laughs> podcast. It's not aligned with my views. And it's, uh, your Twitter handle is at V. Go ahead. Uh, at V Prasad, MDMPH. MDMP, and then Sally. At, but tweet your criticism to at Chadi Naban. Yeah. <laughs> Sally at Bartel <laughs> and uh, Saurabh at Rograg. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Thanks for doing Happy that, Happy New Year, Chadi. A lot of fun. Thank you. See you later, Sally. All right. Take care. Bye, Bye Sarah. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate your support. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a long episode, 90 minutes, but well worth every minute. Maybe you've listened to it over a couple of drives, but listen, we've had a good time. We've talked about everything. And I think it was fun to tape this at the end of 2020 on to 2021. Now, before I let you go, make sure you send me your comments, your ideas, your opinions to shadinabhanoo at outlook.com or to visit, visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. I really appreciate you letting me know how you think I'm doing, sending me a direct message on Twitter at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, and let me know what we can do differently. This is the last episode of 2020. I hope you enjoyed 2020. Thank you for your support. It wasn't an easy year. It was a very hard year. I'm not going to recount everything that you know. I mean, come on. We all know what we've been through all together in 2020, but we can all wish a much better 2021. We have to wish for a much better 2021. I hope you are all safe. I hope you have a wonderful new year. Happy new year. Happy holidays. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with one of the sayings of Winston Churchill. A fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Until next year, happy holidays. Happy New Year. Stay safe.